exists for the edification and benefit of the people of Noblesville Baptist Church, as well as our surrounding community. Our aim is to use this platform as an additional discipleship tool for the discussion of social, political, and theological topics in order to glorify God and grow in Christ-likeness. This episode is part three of a four-part series on sexual identity. Due to the nature of this topic, we do advise that if you are listening to this podcast as a family or with young children around, that you would just use discretion before listening to the rest of the podcast. And we want to say from the outset of this series that we love our LGBTQ neighbors. However, we do believe that the modern sexual identity construct is flawed and it needs corrected with a biblical worldview and a biblical view of sexual identity. And that's the view we're going to argue for in this podcast. So lean in. We pray that this will be encouraging and challenging. Enjoy. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Hello and welcome to the NBC After Hours podcast. I am once again joined here today with Pastor Jonathan Tapp. Hey, me first. Let's go. And Pastor <laughs> Seth Lehman. Good afternoon. Thought I'd so change, special. Thought I'd change things up a little bit. Introduce Jonathan first. I took no offense. The first will be last, and the last will be first. There you go. So thank you, brother. There you go. You're welcome. And today we started off with that scripture reading from Matthew 4, because today we're going to be talking about the epistemology of sexual identity, the epistemology of... The sexual identity construct. Sexual identity construct. It's one of those $10 words there, AJ. Mm -hmm. Can you remind folks what epistemology means? Epistemology is the theory of knowing. Like, how do you know anything? Mm -hmm. That's epistemology. Excellent. Good definition. Boom. So when we're talking about the epistemology of the sexual identity construct, what we're talking about is how does someone know that they are fill-in-the-blank with some type of truth claim, some type of truth claim that is an indicator of personhood. So how does a person know that they are gay? How does a person know that they are bisexual? How does a person know that they're a man? How does a person know that they're a woman? Mm -hmm. There are different ways of arriving to that claim of knowledge. Mm Mm-hmm. There are different epistemological trajectories. And so what we're thinking about is what what is the modern average American person who is living in a world where there is a sexual identity construct? How do they epistemologically arrive at their said knowledge? Mm -hmm. And then we want to contrast that to as we go to the scriptures, how do the scriptures say 
we come to know anything. Mm -hmm. How can a Christian be confident in any particular truth claim? Mm -hmm. And as we compare and contrast, we want to look at the means of arriving at knowing in the current modern psychological sexual identity construct compared to the means of knowing in the world of scripture, mm-hmm. which, which we would say up front that we're coming from a perspective that we say the Bible describes reality. Mm-hmm. The Bible describes what is really real. Mm-hmm. God's word is truth. And so we're going to test everything with scripture. Yeah. And I think that's a good place to start because we in America, at least even in the West in general, we started with a more biblical epistemology. And over time, it's morphed into this, call it new epistemology, however you want to, whatever label you want to give that. Um, So Seth, why don't you guide us in what the old epistemology looked like and how we got where we are today. Yeah. Well, to remind the listener, a lot of this is built on um, some research that I did for a paper that I wrote recently in a class. And what I did in this particular paper that I was writing on the sexual identity construct is I examined some of the critiques of a non-believing secular psychologist, a Frenchman, really a philosopher, Michael Foucault. Uh, Michael Foucault, um, most well-known for his work, The History of Sexuality. Uh, That was volume one of a six-volume work that he did on on this issue of sexual, uh, sexual morality, sexual identity, uh, wrestling with with these things that so uh, characterize our culture. Uh, Michael Foucault was a gay man himself. He would die, I believe, in the 1980s. Um, died after he contracted AIDS, HIV. Mm-hmm. Um, but but his his writings have been very influential, and he's also an interesting person. Um, to look at when you want to look at a possible historical critique coming from a secular source. Mm -hmm. And so uh, let me just begin with one of the things that Foucault observed. Um, Foucault wrote in this work of his, he wrote that um, there were three things that governed morality and sexuality in the uh, modern West. Uh, You might even be more specific and say, in America. Um, And I'll give you a quote from his book. He says this, up to the end of the 18th century, three major explicit codes, apart from the customary regularities and constraints of opinion, govern sexual practices. Canonical law, the Christian pastoral, and civil law. They determined each in its own way the division between the licit and illicit. So to kind of unpack that for the listener, uh, Foucault is saying 
I mean, you go back and look at early American history, you go back all the way to the end of the 18th century. So as we're moving into the 1800s, there are, there are some, some factors that are controlling the way people see things, the way people know what's real, what's mm-hmm. true, what they believe and how they live. And he says, first of all, there's canonical law. So in canonical law, he's referencing that which is taught by the canons of scripture. Mm-hmm. So he's recognizing that America, at least in its founding, was a very Christian country. It was it was guided by Christian ethics. Most people were attending church, and if you asked them what they were, they would have defaulted to a Christian worldview and a and a Christian identity. Well, it's so interesting that Foucault admits that, and you have to admit it because it's true, but in today's age, people argue against that history. Mm-hmm. They're, they, they're saying America was never a Christian nation. It was formed by deists. They just had some far out view of, yeah. of God. So mm-hmm. it's interesting that right today well, the argument's completely different. Right. He's so he, so he talks about the influence of canonical law, right? The moral ethical instructions of scripture. Then he talks about the influence of the Christian pastoral. And so the Christian pastoral would be the influence of pastors, priests, these people that are an integral part of so many people's lives. And so much of how you see the world is shaped by the church that you attend, and the sermons that you hear, and the moral authorities that are in your life. And mm-hmm. so he's, he's just recognizing that. And then he's also recognizing civil law. And I think most people, including Foucault, would acknowledge that American law for the most part has been shaped by Judeo-Christian values Judeo-Christian law Mm -hmm. so to speak and he's saying he's saying this is what shaped people's understanding this is what determined what was okay what was not okay this is where you went for knowledge Mm -hmm. this is where you went for truth Mm -hmm. this was the authority now the scripture says in the multitude of counselors there's safety i mean someone might push back and say well foucault uh, i just i think he was wrong in this observation um he's not the only person that has observed this um others have come along and recognized that what governed and influenced and shaped American thought in prior generations was Christianity more so than what would currently shape our thought, which would be um, the present consensus of modern science or the present consensus of modern psychology or the present consensus of um, whatever is perceived to be politically correct at the time be Mm -hmm. time being. So, so he comes out and he says that, and uh, th- then he also added this. He said, and I'm quoting him again, he said, as defined by the ancient civil or canonical codes, sodomy was a category of forbidden acts. Their perpetrator was nothing more than the juridical subject of them. What he's saying there it is he's recognizing that when you go back in time 
if a person was guilty of sodomy that had a range of meetings and you can listen to a prior podcast to learn a little bit more about that history but this was a sin this was possibly a crime this was something that you did there was no notion that this revealed who you were mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. from an essential identification of self this was a label that was placed upon you because of what you had done mm -hmm. not really much different from you steal something you're then called a thief you tell a lie and then you're then called a liar mm -hmm. um, it's a different thing to claim I've told a lie and I'm therefore a liar or I lie a lot and I'm therefore a liar mm -hmm. versus making the claim that that I was born with an essential identity of being deceptive and so do not be upset and do not say anything against my deceptive ways because that's just part of who I am mm -hmm. and don't you want me to be happy for me to be happy I need to be true to who I am right, right? that's romanticism that's, that's Rousseau do about that right right so so now we have to contrast that so so we've we have a little bit of an understanding of of how we think today so what would it have meant in the late uh, 17th century the early 18th century what would it have meant if you if if your way of knowing was governed by the scripture what would that mean what would a Christian epistemology be and so we, we could turn to different scriptures um, Colossians 2 2 informs us that all knowledge comes from God um, Psalm 19 1 describes how God reveals the knowledge of who he is generally through creation and then particularly John 17 17 God reveals who he is through his word mm -hmm. um, so what I do is I I look at Foucault and I look at some of his critiques and then I I try to unpack a little bit further okay what does it mean to be Christian in your epistemology and what it means broadly is that the revelation of Scripture is your authority mm -hmm. it's it's where you go to discern what is true what is real and an author by the name of Drew Johnson uh, he wrote a book called scriptures knowing and basically in this book he wanted to find in the scripture what does the Bible say about the process of, of us coming to know anything so he wrote a whole book about that and he said the following I thought this was helpful he said according to scripture knowing well entails listening to trusted authorities, and, and by that he's referring to the authors of Scripture, listening to trusted authorities and doing what they prescribe in order to see what they are showing you. Mm -hmm. So Drew Johnson is making the argument that the way the Bible teaches we know anything in a full and robust sense. We know as we listen to what God has said and we trust and obey. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a certain sense we could say we know just by listening to what God has said. Mm -hmm. What he's what he's wanting to argue for is that there's an element where you taste and see the trueness mm 
mm-hmm. of what's true. There, there's a growth in your confidence that what God has said is true as you trust mm-hmm. him and obey. Mm-hmm. And in his book, he provides a number of biblical examples to defend his assertion. So the idea, the idea is this. There's a way of knowing, according to our modern society, it's very experiential. I know because of how I feel. I know because of what I think. I know because so-and-so said Mm -hmm. that if you have these feelings or you have these type of thoughts, then it means you're fill-in-the-blank. Asexual, bisexual, homosexual, heterosexual, demisexual, trans, gender, Mm -hmm. trans man, Mm -hmm. trans woman. Our modern society has a very experiential... And, and it's experiential and it's ironically circular. It's we describe a certain identity and then we say to people, is this what you've experienced? Mm-hmm. To be a homosexual means that you have romantic sexual attractions in a persistent manner towards people of the same sex. So we come up with this truth claim, mm-hmm. truth claim. This is what it means. How did we come up with that definition? We talked to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So based on a lot of human experience, mm-hmm. we came up with this sociological classification, psychological classification. Here's the homosexual. There's a title, there's a description. Title, right. description, similar to like a pathology. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. what does it mean to be and really, this is part of the history. What does it mean to have this particular disease? Mm-hmm. Well, here's a description of what it's like. Mm-hmm. So we came up with these descriptions. And so now we go to a young person and we say to the young person, does this definition or description match your experience? Mm-hmm. And that young person has a eureka moment. And they say to themselves, wow, yes, yeah. I find myself persistently romantically, sexually attracted to individuals mm-hmm. of the same sex. Therefore, I must be a homosexual. That's an experiential epistemology. Mm-hmm. It almost sounds like astrology. <clears throat> they give a description of like your personality. And, you know, if you're a, a Libra or a mm-hmm. or all those. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm technically Libra. That's like the only one I know because people are like, oh, you're a Libra. But like. It's the same t- same type of thing. They give some type of description, and you're like, oh, I guess that does kind of fit me, so I guess I am that mm-hmm. type deal. Mm-hmm. I have a question regarding Foucault. So if we, we back up, <clears throat> Foucault, he doesn't just give this history in this six-volume set. Like, he's leading up to a specific critique. So, like, whenever he says up to the 18th century that there were three codes that constrained uh, you know opinion or whatever <clears throat> um, there was canonical law the Christian pastoral and the civil law like when he says that is he saying that as if it's a bad thing or is he just saying it as like a statement of fact or like does he offer a, like a, a third or fourth category there that should govern us yeah, Foucault, we might be getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but I'd go ahead and answer this. Foucault is critical of Christianity. Mm-hmm. So he would reject 
the scripture as being a place to go for knowledge. Mm -hmm. So he, he sees progress as American society moves away from Christianity mm-hmm. to being governed by modern psychology, certain theories of sexuality. What made Foucault unique is that Foucault, he would be called a post-structuralist. And Foucault would actually be critical of our day today. And he would say, homosexuality is just a construct. Like, that doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. He would say, he would challenge people, create your own definition. Don't, don't let society put you in a box. Mm-hmm. Build your own. You, you are the one that defines whatever label it is that you want to choose. Mm-hmm. You choose your label and you fill it in with the meaning that you create. Mm-hmm. Don't be constrained mm-hmm. by these external forces. That's what Foucault was scratching at. That's where he was wanting to push people. Mm-hmm. He wanted to break through these, whether you want to call them stereotypes, whether you want to call them constructs that function as constraints. Mm-hmm. Um, he would be much more open to the thought of sexual fluidity mm-hmm. than someone who's arguing for uh, a more sexual rigidity based on some sort of essential component of your personhood. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's generally where Foucault argued. Um, mm. what, but what Foucault makes very clear is that in the past, what we as Christians would call sexual immorality it was perceived as an act. It was not perceived as a claim or an insight into personhood. So let me read another quote from Foucault that I think puts it really, really well. Foucault says this, the 19th century homosexual became a personage. I'm going to pause for a minute. He's saying 18th century, it was an act. It was something that you did. Like a crime, like a sin, you could be forgiven. You could pay your debt. You'd then be thought of as being one with the rest. But he's saying something happens. Something happens in the 1800s. In the 19th century, the homosexual became a personage, a past, a case history, a childhood, in addition to being a type of life, a life form, a morphology with an indiscreet anatomy and possibly a mysterious physiology. So, so Foucault is noticing that there's a historical shift. And what I'm just drawing attention to is what happened in society. We shifted our epistemology. We went from, we know certain things based on what the truth of God's word says about us. So in God's word, we're male, we're female. Embedded into that is gender. Embedded into that is a sexual trajectory. Sufficient are the terms male and female. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the scriptural world. Now, the scriptural world still has labels for sins and transgressions, but the it's even interesting the way that the Bible describes it. In, in the Bible description, I'm thinking of in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it's, it's, it's a man lying with a man. Mm-hmm. They don't create a new term of personhood. Word, yeah. It's... When a man acts 
like he ought to act with a woman, specifically his wife, but he does that with another man. That's mm-hmm. a violation of God's law. That's a that's an abomination, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then we get to the New Testament. We get to the New Testament. It's referred to as doing what is contrary to nature, right? And then when we get to Paul's letters, Paul is really the first one to, he kind of creates this new Greek term, arsenokoites, arsenos, man, koites, to lie, to to bed. And you put the two together, we don't find it in any of the secular Jewish, uh, not Jewish, but Greek writings. Paul seems to lean heavily upon the Torah, and he creates this own term that then in modern English translations gets translated homosexual. It's arsenokoites, which is a man's lying with a man. Mm-hmm. But but what I'm saying is this, in Scripture, it describes an action. Mm-hmm. It's not an insight into who you are as a person, because both in Genesis and then with Jesus, Matthew 19, there's only two identities Mm -hmm. there's male there's female Mm -hmm. that's what god made so we're moving away from that world and we're moving into this new world this new world of the homosexuality being a person a past a case history a childhood Mm -hmm. a type of life a a morphology um there's an epistemological shift yeah so you would say so today Today, we have a concept for, so say you have someone who identifies as homosexual in their childhood, and they never act on it. They never act on it. They never pursue a relationship. They live their whole life in celibacy, that kind of a thing. Our modern day would say that's a homosexual person who has made a decision to resist urges or whatever, temptations. You're saying that the Bible wouldn't have a category for that. Because until you are living it out in this action, you are not it, essentially. Correct. Okay. Right. And, and the Bible just doesn't, the Bible's going to emphasize the identity of man, mm-hmm. the identity of woman. You know, what we've done is we have created all these other ways of living out sexually. Mm-hmm. So, in a large part due to the influence of Freud and others who who helped society elevate just how important it is to be sexually satisfied. Mm-hmm. So sexuality is huge in our day. It, it's like everything mm-hmm. in our day. The worst thing that you can do is deny someone sexual fulfillment because mm-hmm. sexual pleasure is the purpose of life per Freud. So given that, we, we've described all these different, what the Bible would call sins, what society used to call, even at times, crimes. We've defined these as just, they're just alternative ways of being. Mm-hmm. From an evolutionary perspective, they're just minority ways of living. So mm-hmm. we, we use terms like sexual minorities. Mm-hmm. But because we've re- rejected a revel- revelatory epistemology, we've rejected a Christian epistemology, we don't care what the Bible has to say mm-hmm. about male or female, about there being one way of expressing your maleness or femaleness sexually. Mm-hmm. The covenant of marriage, mm-hmm. marriage by definition being 
with someone of the opposite sex. We don't, we don't care about that anymore. That is not how we know today. Mm-hmm. We don't know through scripture. We don't know through listening to God and then obeying him to see the fruits of that wisdom confirmed in us over time. We don't know that way. Mm-hmm. The way we know is human experience. Mm-hmm. Human experience has crafted our definition. Human experience then, as that definition resonates with me, oh, yeah. that's what I am. Yeah. 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 So I'm, I'm clearly seeing this battle of epistemology. It's like in my mind, you have like two bucks and they're butting heads. Mm-hmm. You have on one end human experience, which is the, the new buck in town. And you have the old buck, which is the Bible. It's what God says. It's, that's your biblical epistemology and they're butting heads. Huh. Now, I might be jumping the gun here, but... Uh, this I think this will clearly show like what we're not trying to do. So many conservatives now, they want to just go back to the way things were. They want to conserve the, the past. But they're not necessarily doing that based off of a biblical epistemology. They're still, they're clinging to this epistemology of human experience, which is why they reason with, logic and facts of about nature and not God's word. So they're mm. still relying on human experience and they're trying to go back to the way things were, but without scripture. But that's really no different than what they're, the modern epistemology is doing. Right? So mm. do you think that the way that the modern conservative movement is trying to do this, you think that will actually work? Do you think that has any merit at all? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I haven't put a lot of thought into that. So the only thing that I'll say, maybe Jonathan can chime in. I would push back. If you believe and are convinced that conservative thought is trying to conserve sexuality, I think you're deceived. Mm -hmm. I think the trend that we're seeing even as we enter into politics, what, what's happening politically? There, there are strong forces at work to unhitch conservatism from any type of revelatory epistemology. Any type of, we have these positions based on what scripture or Christianity or God has said. So uh, it seems to me from my little corner of the world, the Republican influencers in part would want us to be more open to those that have varied sexual identities, more welcoming of them. Let's drop some of these moral social issues. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's, let's increase the size of the net. Uh, and let's just focus on the conservative things that we agree upon, fiscal mm-hmm. conservatism or small government or, mm. um, so that, that would be my two cent opinion. Jonathan, mm-hmm. you have anything to add? No, other than, I mean, I would just say, I think, uh, you know, I think a, a, you might call it a Christless conservatism Mm -hmm. is essentially liberalism set back a few years in everything that you just said. So there would have been a day where conservatism might have argued um, more on 
sexual issues. Um, but we're not seeing that today. And I think it's, I think with a Christless conservatism, if you attempt to do anything apart from the word of God, the unchanging infallible word of God, you're going to end up in a place where really you're just a, a few steps behind mm-hmm. the flow of the culture. It's like um, when they describe like the movement of the Overton window, like it's it's it stays the same size and it just moves and mm-hmm. it, it moves left, mm-hmm. right? And so the conservatives they just follow that that line and they move right along with them, just a few steps behind. Yeah. That's let, good. Let me add. Uh, there's another really good quote from Foucault that I think just speaks to this to this observation that we're trying to unpack in this particular podcast. Foucault says this: the sodomite had been a temporary aberration. The homosexual was now a species. I'll just pause there for a minute. Like that's that's loaded with significance. He's saying society, American society, Western culture used to see the sodomite. Notice even using a term to describe Mm -hmm. this, what we would call sexual minority, sexual identity, very biblical language. So uh, the sodomite had been a temporary aberration. It's just, it's something you did, something Mm -hmm. you did, a sin, a crime. The homosexual, notice the linguistical change, mm-hmm. words matter. So now we've got a new uh, scientific term. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The homosexual was now a species. Mm. It's, it's its own person. Mm-hmm. Now, picking back up with Foucault, he says this, so too were all those minor perverts whom 19th century psychiatrists entomologized by giving them strange baptismal names. Now, Foucault can be heavy to read, so let me unpack what he's saying there. He's saying he's saying the homosexual is now a species in addition to all the other categories of sexual perversion that in the 19th century psychologists came along and classified through their various diagnosis of these mental disorders mm-hmm. so to entomologize that's a term that's being borrowed from classifying insects mm-hmm. right so so you can you can you can tell Foucault is even critical of modern psychology because mm-hmm. to entomologize is not a positive thing mm-hmm. that's what you do with insects mm-hmm. right um, huh. and, and he says giving them strange baptismal names so one of the things I appreciate about Foucault, he even sees some religious overtones here. Mm-hmm. Like, like, cause the ancient Christian practice was when someone was baptized, they got a new name. Mm-hmm. Well, he's saying, here's been this influence of modern psychology. There's been a new baptism, wow. right? Yeah. We, again, the epistemological shift, there's been a new baptism mm-hmm. and with the new baptism came a new name. Mm-hmm. And what's mm-hmm. interesting with that is if you look at the history of biology, um, who was that? I think uh, Lin- it Linnaeus. I believe it was Linnaeus. He saw himself as a uh, second Adam, and so this boom of of classifying insects and animals and everything, hmm. it came from a man who was 
a Christian who uh, saw his duty as naming all the other animals to show dominion and spread man's dominion over the earth, which is really cool to see that. Interesting. Here. Man, you, your study of biology has paid off, brother. <laughs> now, now, he then goes on to say, so going back to Foucault, he says, these fine names for heresies referred to a nature that was overlooked by the law. That's a truth claim. Now, now he's not saying that he necessarily buys into it, but he's saying this was the perception. The perception was what we have discovered as we're, as we're unhitching ourselves from Scripture, mm-hmm. we're unhitching ourselves from Scripture's way of knowing, as we're moving into this modernism, it, it's, it's man through his own rational exploration of the world can figure out everything. As we're making that shift... What, what we're discovering something that society has not previously known about that that what what were false teachings that's what a heresy is mm-hmm. divisive teachings what were false teachings um, actually refer to a nature a nature we're talking about personhood that was overlooked mm-hmm. by the law mm-hmm. you know so now we're getting into the issue of representation and freedom and you know, this is where the sexual revolution goes in the late 20th century. We need to be recognized as persons. Right. You know, we, we, we jump on the back of the uh, battle for equal rights based mm-hmm. on race. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're pushing against segregation and, right. and just hitching ourselves to that wagon. Right. He, he said then, the strategy, Foucault says, the strategy behind this dissemination was to strew reality with them and incorporate them into the individual. So he's, he's basically saying there, there's, there's a whole point to this shift. And the whole point is to change perceptions of reality. Remember, how did we know? We were guided in knowledge by scripture, hearing what God has said and obeying the reality of male and female. Well, let's, let's, let's blur that. Let's shake that up. Mm-hmm. Um, let's create a new reality. And, and we're going to, we're going to incorporate these new identities into the individual. I mean, we're going to connect this to deep level personhood. Hmm. So I think Foucault nailed historically his perception of how this how this change has transpired. We're not hand in hand with Foucault. We'd call him a co-belligerent. You know, we join with him in the critique, though we are very different in our mm-hmm. own beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's very very interesting. So if we if we move forward, it's interesting to think. Okay we're Christians, right? So if anyone's listening to this and they're a Christian, what are the implications? What, what the implication of this is, uh, several fold one, an experiential epistemology is a very weak epistemology. Like when you yeah. move into the realm of human logic and rational reasoning, mm-hmm. anecdotal evidence, is I mean it's, there are fallacies 
called the anecdotal fallacy, yeah. which is the idea of making an argument based on personal experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and then your personal experience then becoming the logical grounds yeah. for a, for yeah. a truth claim that you're not going to press yeah. upon everyone. Yeah. Do that in a debate and you'll get ripped to shreds. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so you would want to say to someone, this is a very weak form of knowing. And I just, even if you don't buy into the Christian way of knowing, mm -hmm. it's a very weak form of knowing, but you also want to secondly say, um, we, you want to, to have people think a little bit more about this issue from a different lens. We tend to approach it ethically and we very rarely approach it from an epistemology. Mm -hmm. I think the Christian epistemology is the most satisfying epistemology. How can we really know anything? Um, presuppositionally mm -hmm. there must be a god who knows everything mm -hmm. god must know everything yeah. and our capacity to know corresponds to what he has revealed mm -hmm. he's the only one that can know everything whatever he has said is the standard by which i'm able to ascertain figure out whether or not I know anything, I only, I only can know based upon the all knowing one mm -hmm. yeah. who has made himself and reality known through his word. Yeah. Right. Not only all knowing, but unchanging mm -hmm. human experience, you know, says that we came here, or at least the, the consensus of scientists now say that we got here through change, like a lot and a lot and a lot of change they don't know where it you know how it began but they say it changed a lot and now that's how we're here and so um even within their own uh epistemological framework they don't they shouldn't expect that tomorrow is anything like today mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. their whole system is based off of things changing tomorrow mm -hmm and humanity evolving into the next form or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting contrast. Um, I go back to Drew Johnson's work on scriptures knowing he actually uses as an example in the early creation account. He says this and I'll, I'll quote him now. He says, apart from the intimation of sexual knowledge in the seventh day creation account, the man's discovery that the woman is his fit mate offers the first glimpse into a canonical view of knowledge. Through heeding the guidance of Yahweh, the man comes to know who is his fit mate, i.e. the woman, and who is not. And so Drew Johnson wants those of us who even believe the scripture, he wants us to think about how did Adam come to know who he was and who he sexually fit with. Mm -hmm. what, what did it mean for him to be a man? How did Adam even know that? And what he's saying is there's a whole narrative about that in Genesis 2. God has Adam go through this task of naming all the different animals. And mm -hmm. certainly he observed various aspects of what we would call femininity. Mm -hmm. or masculinity in all these different creatures. And he comes to the recognition. He has no helper. He has no 
corresponding partner suitable for him. Right. So, so God then gives him some instructions. Um, gave him the instructions of naming the animals, then puts Adam to sleep and uh, makes the woman. God brings the woman to the man. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's making the claim, long story short, he's making the claim, Adam came to truly know what it meant for him to be a man, what his responsibilities were familially mm-hmm. by listening to the voice of God, mm-hmm. trusting what God had said, and as he obeyed God, God brought him to that point of clarity. Hmm. You know, what does Adam say when he sees the woman? This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Mm-hmm. She will be called woman for she was taken out of man. Hmm. And then Moses, the author of Genesis says, you know, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they too shall become one flesh mm-hmm. so it's just an interesting he gives several other examples he would point to the example of the children of israel how do they come to know who yahweh is they they listen to a trusted authority moses mm-hmm. they they follow and heed moses's instructions mm-hmm. and and fast forward a little bit they're at sinai and suddenly God is speaking to them and right. God is giving him his law. Mm-hmm. And then he then fast forwards and he kind of uses as his third proof. It's, it's Jesus and the disciples, mm-hmm. how the disciples come to know who Jesus is. Well, they listen to mm-hmm. this obvious authority, mm-hmm. this, this prophet like unto Elijah. They listen to him, but they come to understand his identity increasingly Right, the, the the apostles make an initial confession, but boy, after they've spent several years of living and following and submitting, you know, he after the resurrection, yeah. they really know, right? Yeah. After yeah. the transfiguration, after the resurrection, they they know in such a more full and robust sense. So you guys respond to this. I think this is a very interesting thing for us to to to, to think about because Imagine we had a young person in the room today and they were saying, well, Seth, you know, all that sounds great, but you know, I struggle with a sexual lust for this person who happens to be another guy and I'm a guy. What does that say about me? Who who am I? And what I'd want to say to them is this, I want to say, all right, how do we know anything? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We can't rest in human experience. What does the Bible say about our heart and our ability to perceive reality? Mm-hmm. The Bible says things like this. Your heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? Mm-hmm. You can't even know your own heart. Yeah. So, so scripture warns about there, there's a way that seems right unto man but the end thereof is the way of death. Mm-hmm. So, so if we're going to listen to God, God's going to warn us, don't trust your experience. Don't yeah. trust your feelings. Right. Don't trust mm-hmm. what you have endured maybe for the last year or two of your life. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't let that fundamentally define you. Scripture is going to say, listen to me. Mm-hmm. And, and so we go to the book. And what does the book say? Well, the book says you're male or female. 
Mm-hmm. And with that, the book describes a God-designed sexual trajectory. But the young person is sitting here, and they're saying, but but my heart doesn't want what God's wants for me. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, welcome, welcome to, <laughs> to reality after the fall. This right. book that gives us true knowledge actually gives you a better explanation for why you feel this way mm-hmm. than what you're being sold yeah. through modern sexual identity construct. Mm-hmm. What the yeah. book is saying is there's this thing called original sin. Hmm. You don't want what God wants, but this is bigger than just your sexuality. Mm-hmm. This is in all things. You don't really want what God wants, but God has God has done something to address that. Yeah. Yeah. God sent his son. And that leads us to the gospel. That leads us to Christ. That leads us to guiding this young person to recognize, you know what? God has made me a man. Mm-hmm. And my heart is tricksy. My heart can't be trusted. And it's natural for my heart to want things that God doesn't want. Mm-hmm. But here's what the new covenant promises. The new covenant promises that God's spirit dwelling in me will give me a desire to obey God's law. Mm-hmm. All right, now let's think of the implications of that. That, that means one of two realities. And both of them are happy. The reality that God grants that person contentness in their singleness. Mm-hmm. And then they're able to live out as a man. But they can live out in as a man in a holy manner before the Lord. Mm-hmm. Or we can't take this off the shelf. As God has providentially ordained for them to be married and have family. Mm-hmm. Christians have this deep reservoir that through the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ by his spirit imparts to us desires we never had before. Mm -hmm. And they're not, and this is why I don't even like the sexual identity construct. They shouldn't be labeled heterosexual desires. Yeah. Because now we're falling back into a a bad construct. Yeah. Like, like, well, no, Uh, we could say this, God's granting you masculine desires. Mm -hmm. Um, but but God's granting you a pure desire mm-hmm. yeah. for your wife right. or this one who will be your wife. And so we should have categories in our head that as persons who are male or female, we can experience all sorts of lust. Yeah. Lust towards all sorts of deviations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nothing should shock us. But we can't let that lead us to making truth claims that this is an insight into distinct persons. Right. Yeah. And that is so much better and so much more glorious than a Christian counselor trying to come along someone and telling them that they are stuck in the identity that they have because they were, that's just who they are. Mm -hmm. Like that reality that you just described gives hope and freedom from the the bondage of that identity, which is amazing. Yeah. All right, we're gonna go ahead and end it, Jonathan. I'm gonna give you the last words. Okay, you're wrapping it up. Um, yeah, I, I, it's a lot of good stuff to think about. I, I the only um, thing that sticks out in my mind is just this constant refrain that we see 
in throughout the Old Testament, starting in the beginning, this constant refrain of listening to the voice of God. And it kind of ties back to how you opened up the the episode, right? With, mm-hmm. with man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In the curse in Genesis 3, have it pulled up here, verse 17, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and Seth, correct me if I'm if I'm wrong. You're the Hebrew scholar. Isn't that the same the same usage, the same type of phrasing that that we see throughout some of the Old Testament passages, throughout the prophets of Israel not listening to the voice of their God, Israel rejecting the voice of their God, and then the opposite. We see it in. Joshua, if you will listen, you will meditate on my law, you will obey. Mm-hmm. Psalm, Psalm 1, blessed is the man who will listen, meditate, and obey. There's just this c- consistent theme throughout the entire book that mm-hmm. if, we, if we will hear the word of God, right, we will find abundant life. Mm-hmm. And as long as we don't, and this comes to epistemology, how do we know what we know? If we don't have the foundation of of what God has spoken as our ultimate authority in what we know, we will be lost. We will be lost and, and we will fall prey to wherever the culture happens to be going or whatever the trends happen to be at, at, at any given point. Um, I think that's a, a fascinating thing that, that Christians have mm-hmm. to keep in mind. Yeah, um, as we land this plane... I know that uh, some person out there might say, Seth, I feel like you've minimized the struggle. Mm-hmm. You've minimized how hard this can be for someone. And that's not my intent. Christians should have a robust category for the ongoing struggle with the old nature. Mm-hmm. And every Christian I'm convinced that you've ever met can think of various areas in their life where sanctification progressed slowly, mm-hmm. where there was a ongoing up and down, back and forward struggle, yeah. hopefully with an upward trajectory. Mm-hmm. But, but Christians have a deep reservoir to draw upon for killing sin, mm-hmm. living the crucified life mm-hmm. daily. Mm-hmm. So, so I want to say to that person who might be listening, I hear you, and I don't want you to think that I'm being glib or or being over optimistic uh no one's making the claim that just because a person comes to jesus they'll right. never experience temptation to sin again that's so foreign to the scriptures sure. what we're simply saying is this we don't want to underestimate the way that philosophy can take us captive mm-hmm. and lead us away from christ mm-hmm. yeah. which is colossians chapter 2 mm-hmm. You buy into false constructs. You buy into that. To what degree will that hold you captive? To what degree will you not be free because of the construct you've bought into to think new thoughts, to explore new opportunities? Hmm. And God's not holding you back, but Satan is holding you back by the means of a false human philosophy. Hmm. Sin binds us oftentimes by binding our minds. Yeah. There's things you won't even think about or entertain because you've Im- you've imbibed a certain ideology. Yeah. Yeah. And That's and huge. I just want you to say 
which is more realistic in our current day person who's struggling and listening to this broadcast, which is more of a reality. You have been more impacted, shaped, controlled by the modern sexual identity construct or God's word. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying, man, if you're listening to this and you have any ounce of perspective, like the modern sexual identity construct is just the water that we fish it's, swim in. It's everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's everywhere. Yep. And, uh, and let's, let's, let's try to leap out of this fishbowl uh. into some fresh water, which is the, the world of scripture. Let's mm-hmm. be careful about our categories. Let's listen to the voice of God and obey him. Even if it costs us our life, because the promise is, if we lose our life for his sake, we truly find it. Amen. 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 That is a good note to end on. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can email secretary at org. Um, text us, email us. And next week, we are going to be getting into a positive view of sexuality from a biblical perspective so we're going to be getting a biblical perspective on sexuality so thank you for tuning in we will see you next time